Hey, my name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vineyard, and it's my privilege to close our series, The Witness. It has been so, so good for me, and I hope it's been good for you also. One of the interesting things about the book of Acts is the constant reminder that God is at work in the world, and I love this phrase, for his glory, but for our good, and through us, the good of others. Lest you think this is a new idea, you have to go all the way back to the beginning, because this is the original intention of God for his good creation. And for better or worse, and I hope it's better and better and better, he has chosen us to be co-laborers with him in his good creation. And so we've seen all kinds of incredibly wonderful activity of the Spirit of God at work in his people declaring his glorious name. And today, as we close our series, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 10. We're going to run into two guys, Peter and Cornelius. Interestingly enough, this story is so important, and and I really mean this. It's so important that it takes three times through to tell it. You see, there's a repetition of this story two times in Acts 10 and another time in Acts 11. And what you see is the glorious work at God in the inner life of those who love him to transform them so that they become open doors. And people who are open doors can open doors. This is the process of God's great glory through Peter and Cornelius. As we look at the text today, perhaps your mind might go like many theologians' minds have gone to saying, what we're going to talk about today is the Gentile Pentecost. But before I go there, let me do something that my heart was moved. If you thought I was playing a game on my phone up front earlier, I wasn't. I was actually actually looking at the text because as we sang about the glory of God, my mind couldn't help but go to the end. And so I'm going to go to the end because this is the trajectory of open doors to people who are paying attention to their inner life. And what I mean by that, the inner life is the wooing of the Spirit with the invitation of God to say yes to all that He is and all that He has for us. I love it. Here's the end. Revelation 5. You go read it on your own because I'm going to extract some really good stuff. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm just going to jump. I'm just going to jump really, really down to verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because with 
because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons, listen, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Pause. Is there anybody not included? Is there anybody beyond the work of Jesus? I'll say it for you. I know you're saying it internally. No. And then he goes on to say about those people, you have made them to be a kingdom of, to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And it continues on and on and on about the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon ten thousands. And in a loud voice, the song that they are singing is this, which is what we were singing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The reply of all those listening to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we begin at the end. But we come back to the open door that God is using through opening the hearts of those who are devoted and followers of his. Several years ago, on one of my first visits to Istanbul, Turkey, I had the privilege of visiting the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom. It's a historic house of Christian worship. It's a beautiful place and its history is as beautiful as its contents. Because its history at one time for nearly a thousand years was the center of the Eastern Orthodox Church. You've heard of Constantine, you've heard of Constantinople. Istanbul is Constantinople. I visited that uh, church at that time. It was a museum, hence that has been returned into an Islamic worship center. And it is breathtaking. And it's filled with stories of the Christian faith. The art the mosaics all point to the one who is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I was actually with one of uh, our baristas at the coffee shop today, my friend Lamar Stokes. As we were touring through the museum, we stepped into the entry of the auditorium, this grand space of worship. We went through the heavy wooden doors. We stepped into a concave place worn into the stone. And my mind immediately went, and actually Lamar's mind, we, we went there together, was Psalm 84. Psalm 84 says, 
I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than spend my life anywhere else. There's two ways to think about a doorkeeper, and this is the transitional moment of doorkeeping in the kingdom. Doorkeepers are there to make sure that those who get in are vetted really clearly. So they're there to mostly keep people out. But as we stood in that concave place in the stone that was worn over a thousand years or so, we both had this thought. The faithful who stand as open doors to welcome all who would worship today. The open door that we see in Peter and Cornelius is an invitation to all who will worship. So if you have your Bibles, you have your smart device, you want to go to Acts chapter 10, I'm going to begin at the beginning. And I'll just tell you in advance. I told you there's three tellings of the story in Acts chapter 10 and 11. I'm taking it easy on you today. I'm only going to tell you two of them. I'm just going to pick some things from from those, and I I hope that you'll see the work of God in these two people. So here we go. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius. A centurion simply means a leader of a hundred. In what was known as the Italian regiment, He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, pause, three in the afternoon was a, a prayer time for the Jewish people. He finds himself praying. Interestingly, a devout man who's invested his time in understanding the God at work in Israel. He had a vision while he was praying. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear and replied, What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner who is, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and one devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. Off they go. We continue now with Peter. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Um, We talk about houses. Um, Most of these access to the roofs are external stairs that go all the way up to the top, and it's designed to be a cool place in the evening or a place for people to relax and uh, take a load off. You know, just relax and rest. They went up on the roof to pray. I love this. 
He became hungry and wanted something to eat while the meal was being prepared. He fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. Pause. Don't, don't go too quickly. Can you see it? Can you see it? Okay, this is holy imagination, right? A sheet, four corners are being held, comes down, right? Like, this is, this is really good stuff. Like, you can be there, you can see it. It's dropped by its four corners, and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, kill, and eat. Okay, as I was working on this, I thought to myself, isn't it like God? He's hungry, waiting on lunch, and God shows up. God shows up in this trance vision um, video of the mind and what's it about food food he's hungry and the food that's set before him is interestingly not available to him you're going to hear it he says to the voice that said get up Peter kill and eat he said surely not I have never eaten anything impure or unclean who do you think I am I'm a good God-fearing Jew there is no way now here, here's the deal in this passage there are kosher and unkosher consumptive opportunities but the kosher opportunity has been contaminated because of its proximity to the unholy. This is going to be really important as we move forward. The things that are holy being contaminated by being close to the things that are not. And so he says, I can't do it. And then the voice says to him, a second time by speaking, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius, a centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house and the vision begins to shape him. You realize that the invitation causes him to be ceremonially unclean. 
Interestingly enough, he already was ceremonial unclean because he was staying at the house of Simon, who was a tanner. The reason he was ceremonially unclean is because tanners have to be handling dead animals all the time, and just that in and of itself would disqualify his purity, and so he was already, quote, contaminated. But the Spirit of God said to him, don't call what I've called holy unholy, and it begins to seep into him. And so there's a group of people that are deeply estranged from who he is and the people from whom he dwells, and he invites them in rather quickly. I just want you to get that in your head, because what I want to do in the first telling of the story is to share some observable indicators of what I would call open hearts that I see in this text. And the first indicator of an open heart is being receptive, being receptive. Now, when I talk about being receptive, what I, what I want to you to know is that in my life, I think that curiosity is at the center of receptivity. Curiosity is at the center of receptivity. I, I have a two-year-old granddaughter that I love, and she is so curious. Oh, she's curious. She has not lost it yet. <clears throat> have you lost yours? Your spiritual well-being will be greatly enhanced for you to nurture it to life again. In this text, listen, we're invited into the story of a curious Gentile man who is a devout, God-fearing man, praying man, who generously is serving the poor and needy. Sounds like God's stuff while also getting a peek into the life of a faithful Jewish man who is willing to receive a confusing message. Surely not. I have never done that. I wouldn't ever do that. Confused. But he's willing to wrestle with God to understand what he has seen and what he has each is receptive to the voice of God, the whisper of God. What about us? I talked with Rachel in the lobby. Rachel did such an incredible job last week in leading us through Saul's conversion. And she pointed out to us that our receptivity matters. And so my concept of receptivity is all about my God image. Uh, it's all about my God image being shaped in faith to believe that when God speaks to me, whatever he says is good for me. Can I say it again? When God speaks to me, whatever he says 
is good for me. A challenge to us as individuals and a community is to see God for who he truly is and to resist, Rachel, thank you, to resist closed circle thinking. I'm quoting now. Closed circle people in closed circle arguments do things based on knowledge they've interpreted in certain ways, closed ways. Thank you, Rachel. She went on to say that closed circle people in their conversations can quickly turn into echo chambers. I think that's a, I dare say, a prophetic word for us. Pay attention. Pay attention that we're not closed circle people dialoguing in echo chambers. I like a quote that I heard from Gordon Fee several years ago. He helps us see this challenge in a different way and he says as we face the challenge of being closed circle people he says the Pharisees suffered from one major condition I want to change that major condition fatal flaw one fatal flaw hardening of the categories do you see it you see it closed circle conversations are often an outworking of hardening of the categories because for whatever reason we become fearful people trying to rest on certainty as opposed to faith-filled people who are happy to live in the mystery of God. There is something beautiful about the mystery of God. Receptivity and curiosity will usher us into the mystery of God, where you can say with great joy, I don't know, but I know who. I don't know, but I know who. You see, that's, that's the issue. We don't have to know everything because we know one who does know all things. Gordon Fee wrote a book several years ago, eh, man, decades ago now, on how to, read the gospel, how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And he and his co-author that I can't think of his name right now said this, and I've carried it with me for the, ever since I read it. Here it is. There is no fear because all truth is God's truth. There is no reason to fear because all truth is God's truth. Uh, rabbit trail. Back to receptivity. Here's two accounts of receptivity. Cornelius receives affirmation. The angel of the Lord said to him, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear, which is a common response when the angel of the Lord appears to people. What is it, Lord? He asked, and the angel answered, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Just take that in. Do you know how many people, and I'll just say, not you, me. Do you know how many times that God has spoken in an affirming way to me and what I said is, uh-uh, 
no, you probably have the wrong person. Like, like I'm dismissive of this invitation from God. His voice of blessing, his voice of affirmation. And I want to tell you, the voice of affirmation is a voice in which God speaks all the time. He regularly is affirming us because we are his sheep, the sheep of his good pasture, the one, Psalm 23, who is always with us. And the, the last verse of Psalm 23, because it's his mercy and goodness that is chasing after us continually. He's always speaking affirming words. Cornelius was not dismissive in his response. It was a receptivity to God's voice of affirmation that led him to act. Now, we go to Peter. And uh, Peter also was receptive. And, and we don't like this one. Peter was able to receive appropriate correction. Appropriate correction. Now, yeah, Okay, I'll, I'll read it. The voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Why would I say appropriate correction? Because we have an oppositional force that wants to direct us as well. We have an accuser of the saints who has no interest in our well-being. He has no interest in our well-being. He only seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he didn't earn the name voice of accuser for no good, voice of the accuser for no good reason. You see, he comes to us regularly with correction, which is often condemnation, which is often a heavy weight under which we walk and are looking for a way out. He received appropriate correction. And he heard the voice of the Spirit say, they're calling for you, they're here, go down and meet them, and he went down and met them. Which leads me to open hearts being able to be transformed with my next observation in the text. Um, receptivity allows us to respond in obedience to the invitation of God. Obedience in the invitation of God. You, you understand the risky nature of each of their obedience? There, there's some risky stuff. I, I can look at the clock, and I'm going to be in trouble, so I'm going to let you dig that out. You go back and read it. There's some, there's some risks, I think, that are in the text if you just want to dwell in it for a minute. So really simple. Acts 10 and Acts 11. Just read it. Just let it, let it speak to you. And ask the Lord... What was Alan talking about in the risk of obedience, okay? 
I'll give you a couple of hints. There's often a price to be paid for obedience. And I'm just going to suggest one of them is, are you willing to be misunderstood? Are you willing to be misunderstood? And the sec- that, that one's generally a little easier to get through than the next one for me, right? This is, this is the one that's a little harder for me. The price to be paid for obedience is a willingness to create space, to pause, to reflect, to wrestle with God for a response. Now let me say to you, one of the most important things we do as Christ followers is pay attention to our inner life. You get, you get the conversation is the inner life. The voice of God is in the inner life in this capacity. And the response to create space, pause, and reflect, to wrestle with God is an engagement of the inner life. And I don't always like that because I want the answer now. I'd like to just get on with it. And that's not always possible but responding in obedience will do this for us it will release us to witness to tell our story to tell of your personal and communal experience with God your Christ encounter and your ongoing transformation your freedom that is coming through life in Jesus the price of obedience is often paid in a long obedience in the same direction to borrow from Eugene Peterson, which is simply an application of being courageous people to hold our course when tough gets going. You know, when when it gets tough, there's a courage that wants to be ignited within us. So let me move quickly. In this story, we talked about, again, being transformed and some things that we observed about an open heart that transforms us. Told you I was not going to tell it all three times. I'm going to tell it two. So I'm switching to the second telling of the story. And I just want to tell you the second story to me is a story of two conversions in one church. Two conversions in one church. Now, conversion is a spiritual movement. Conversion is a spiritual movement. A movement toward the invitation of God. See, conversion is spiritual movement toward the invitation of God. A yes to him and all that he is and all that he's doing. In a biblical sense, conversion means turning. And here's, we, we talk often, and this is true, but I want to push just a tad. We talk often and spend most of our time about turning away from, turning away from sin, turning away from sin for the purpose of repentance. I want to suggest that a helpful turning away is to focus on turning toward, turning toward. Turning toward Christ in faith. And as we turn toward Christ in faith, 
we will activate opposition to the self-described uh, uh, definition provided to us by Pearlander author Donald Miller. Uh, Ken Hanning, if you're in the building, Ken, Ken Hanning and Donald Miller are contemporaries. Um, and Donald Miller simply says this. He says, sin is self-absorption. Sin is self-absorption. Self-absorption, if we're turning away from, can get us even more self-absorbed about how we are not what we want to be. While turning toward Christ is all about becoming who he's calling us to be. In order to pursue an entirely new life, and that new life, turning toward is to pursue an entirely new life. Let me say, that new life is love of God and neighbor, the great commandment. I need to say that in conversion, what we're talking about, conversion is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. It's a process, a process, a process in the life of every believer, every Christ follower, which is why we say here at the Pearland Vineyard, we never check the box done. You don't graduate till you graduate. And graduation day hasn't arrived because graduation day for us comes at the end of the age where God makes all things new. Now let me, let me just quickly talk about Peter's movement toward conversion. Just, just hear it. Just let your mind listen. I'm, I'm, I'm just reading the text. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, stopped, was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. Hear it again. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter is holding space in contemplation. He's discerning and open to and wrestling with the invitation of God and accepts the invitation of obediently embracing his guests and embracing the heart of God in doing so. He gathers some of his buddies. They now travel down to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. Peter enters Cornelius' house, and as he enters, Cornelius falls to the ground in reverence, and Peter says, appropriately, get up, I'm only a man. The conversation continues. While Peter was talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you're well, you're well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. When did he come to that conclusion? Can I suggest to you on the way? I can't tell you for, for sure, but I, I want to suggest to you, on the way, 31 miles. That's a long trek. He had a little bit of time to think. 
He's already got it on his mind. He's already had two things. He's on the way. I suggest to you that he figured it out while he was on the way. And so he says, so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Now, here's, here's the further transformation. May I ask why you sent for me? Curiosity. He doesn't know why he's there quite. I don't think he quite knows why he's, why he's there. He opens the door for Cornelius. And here's how he does it. He does it by addressing the elephant in the room. He says right up front, hey, you, we all know one thing, and I just want to tell you about it right here. You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit with a Gentile. And then he delivers the fire. He delivers it. He said, but God, but God, and that is the hope in our lives that God and only God will speak to us. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. May I ask you why you sent for me? Cornelius' movement, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered the gifts of the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon and Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. Here, here we go. Transitional moment. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. It's gone from me to we. Cornelius' heart is being expanded and he revisits his devotion in prayer and generosity to the poor, that God has heard his prayers and remembered his gifts. God hears and remembers, and God hearing and remembers, remembering simply means that his prayers and his service were acceptable to God, and on the way, God was going to show him something more valuable. It's getting ready to come. He sends his representatives to invite Peter. He's thankful that they've come. And so he says, now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. One of the transitional moments is the affirmation of God now brings Cornelius to a discerning belief that God is now present among them. And he says to Peter, my translation, give us all that God's given you to give to us. And Peter just lets them have it. Peter preaches in freedom. He begins to speak and he says, I truly know now that it is God who does not show favoritism but accepts from where the end from every nation the one who fears him and who does what's right. Peter proceeds to share with them the good news of Jesus, his life and ministry and death and resurrection. He testifies, he preaches that Jesus is the one whom God has anointed as judge of the living and the dead. Here's what he says, Revelation. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Go back to Abram and the covenant. I bless you to be a blessing and you will be as multiplied as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. You will be a blessing to all. From there all the way to here, there is a continuous thread in the text of God's willingness to invite all of his good creation to salvation. 
It is just becoming a clear and open door now. Who let you in? Who let you in? The invitation of Jesus. The work of Jesus is the one who lets us in. And I love it. It gets better and better and I'm going to quit. That's part of the better. Wouldn't this be awesome? Put yourself here. Just listen. While Peter was still speaking these words, he just preaching. I think he might just be getting warmed up. The Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter summarized, surely, surely, no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. A little bit of reversal, right? A little bit of reversal. Baptism in water, the indwelling of the Spirit. It flips it on you. Filled with the Spirit, you got to be baptized. Surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Interestingly enough, this is, a, this is an interesting phrase. So he ordered. He didn't ask. Go be baptized. So he ordered... He ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Which leads us to two men being formed and shaped by the transforming work of the Spirit creates one church. So I just jumped to 11, chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Peter speaking. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way when they, we're talking about People beyond Caesarea, he's going back to Jerusalem. There's a whole lot more to be said about the decision of the church in Jerusalem that says circumcision is not necessary for Gentile followers of Jesus. We're all part of one big family, which creates one big church because we're faithful and have faith in Jesus. He says, when they, when they heard this, all their questions were answered. Well, it says it this way. They had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Hallelujah. It's us. It's we. It's me. It's you. It's this community. And all who would say yes to the invitation of God. So, let me just close it this way. My own journey is calling me to understand and live Curiously, in the reality that all humanity bears the image of God and therefore is of great worth. No one is at great distance. No matter how far away we think they may be. You just, you just got to pay attention here. Maybe I just talk to myself. I just got to pay attention here. 
the outworking of that is I cannot be dismissive of anyone of disagreement. I just, just disagree. You got, I just can't be dismissive because we disagree. You choose the topic. I don't really care. But disagreement is not, I just can't disagree with you because you don't agree with me. I, I can't dismiss you because you disagree with me. Right? Contact theory. Yeah? yeah that's Go back and listen to last week's sermon. Right? You just need to hear that. Rachel unpacked that for us. Relationships matter so that we can have conversations that aren't tension and turmoil and challenge and trouble. Not just disagreement, but conflicting values, conflicting beliefs do not allow us to entrench and lob bombs of accusation and fear and hate and anger and frustration to those we disagree with. I am compelled to be led by the mandate of the great commandment, Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let's pay attention to our inner life, the place where God speaks to us. I'm done, so I want you to stand. I just have three questions. Three questions for us to close our time together today. You know your journey, you're paying attention to your inner life, so the question begs, what do you want from God? What do you want? I can ask that question because it's a question Jesus asked all the time. He would say, what do you want me to do for you? He's still answering that question. Like, when he asks, what do you want me to do for you, he's expecting us to tell him what we want him to do for us. And he has showed great generosity, shown great generosity about doing for us what we need and what we ask for, and it sometimes is in alignment to what we want. You notice Jesus asks, and they ask, and then he does something that they didn't ask for because it was the better thing. Like, like Jesus regularly did something for someone they didn't ask for, like he didn't even pay any attention, but he elevated their ask to a really good thing that they really, 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 really needed. This is the great love of God. So what do you want from God? He's been speaking to you. How will you respond? Okay? He's been speaking to you. I don't know what he's been speaking, but will you be receptive and obedient, allowing it to transform you from the inside out to love God more deeply and to love your neighbor with greater passion. Two more things. If Peter resonated with you today, let me ask you this question. What might you need from God in order to let go? Let go of your hardened categories expressed maybe in pride, prejudice, or judgment. 
This is where God wants to speak to us. Where might he be speaking to us? The, the third question simply is this. If Cornelius resonates with you, what do you need from God in order to receive all that he has to give to you? A greater yes to all that he has to give to you. Fire. Fulfillment. Freedom. Flourishing. And so today, if any of these resonate with you, and I'm going to highlight one thing, it's possible that you're here today with the resonance of the voice of the Spirit inviting you to say yes in obedience to following Christ, and you have never, you have never given yourself to say yes to that invitation. I know this is true. This is his whisper to all who are not yet his children following him, right? to all those who are not following him. So if you are hearing that whisper of invitation, come to me. You're labored down with the weight of the world. You're weary and you're tired. The promise of Jesus, as you come to him, he says, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Other than that, I'm going to pray. And if you're on our prayer team, you're available. You're a, a leader, a small group leader, ministry leader. Uh, you want to be available to pray. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you at the end of this prayer to be responsive to the voice of God whispering to you today. Today, oh God, thank you that you love us deeply. I'm reminded of the phrase, you cannot love us more than you already do, and you will not love us less. Write it on our hearts because this is the place that your spirit speaks. You write your words on our hearts. Write them, I pray. Engrave them. Remind us that we are your good promise, your good gift, that we are loved. Remind us that your grace is greater than all our sin, and you by your spirit have opened the door to all and we as your followers have privilege to open the door for others to know how high and wide and long and deep is your incredible love for us in Christ Jesus. This I pray for the people of God that they will be lights and shine brightly wherever they go to the glory of God and for their good and through them the good of others. This I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.